0: morning. Gracious God, in rushing waters and in dry wilderness, in every season and circumstance, we need your sustaining word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, proclaim the good news among us today, so that we may repent and believe and see anew how the time is fulfilled and the kingdom has come near. In Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. We are, uh, it is the first Sunday of Lent, so I I like to let people know ahead of time that we will have some congregational prayer that we do from time to time, um, a prayer of, prayers of repentance, Uh, just short things. You don't have to pray with us, but if you feel led, uh, we will be doing that a little bit later on to celebrate this first uh, Sunday of Lent. Um, We are, uh, I don't know if... Uh, probably everyone has had this experience where you have a light bulb moment and you realize this isn't working. <laughs> Whatever it is. Um, that need to change. I know we have different phrases for it. Moment of truth, do or die, breaking point, uh, the prodigal son. Uh, has a phrase in there that says the prodigal came to his senses. He had a moment where he realized that um, this isn't working. It's not going well for me. It's not going well for others. It's not going well for whatever our community is, as Graham mentioned. Um, <clears throat> it might be toxic relationship. It might be a financial plan that's not working, whether it's a thought out plan or just what we would normally go to unconsciously. Um, Unable to get over our eating, shopping, drinking, and health problems, whatever it is, so we come to that po- point where we feel like this is not working. Um, the church calendar has that built into the season, which is beautiful. And as I look back on, I think about 25, 26 years, I wish I'd been celebrating Lent uh, all that time. Um, but I didn't come from a tradition that that did that, um, and it's that's that's not good. Because the calendar has a time built in where we repent and we look at what's not going well. We look at our brokenness. We look at what needs to be healed, both in ourselves individually and as a community. Um, And uh, wherever this practice started, I didn't research that. It's a very wise thing to do. Um, And it's it's similar to Advent. Advent is a time of repentance as well. But Advent has that feeling of hope and anticipation Uh, leading up to Christmas. uh, We enter into Israel's story uh, where they are looking for their savior, their king to return. And there is a growing sense of anticipation. But Easter is a surprise. No one saw that coming. And so Lent, it doesn't, at least for me, it doesn't quite have that sense of uh, hope. I mean, we know how the story ends, and God is good, and God is faithful. We're going to see that, that that is part of Israel's story, this hope in a, in a God that is uh, faithful to God's covenant with his people. Um, but Lent, at least for me, seems to be a bit more focused on brokenness um, and, and entering into Jesus' story of suffering as well. So Lent is 40 days leading up to Easter. Um, And it coincides with Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness um, and the temptations he faces there. It uh, it starts on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is a time where uh, we launched that. We had a Zoom meeting on on Wednesday night for that. Typically, people put ashes on their forehead. Uh, COVID has prevented us from doing that this year. Um, those, the ashes traditionally are the palm branches from Palm Sunday the year before. The palm branches get burned. You keep the ashes. Those are the ashes for Ash Wednesday a year later. Um, <clears throat> so it's 40 days, uh, representing Jesus, 40 days of temptation. There's ashes. It's an expression. Use of ashes is an expression of grief. Um, but more for Lent, it's an expression of sorrow. Sorrow. Over our sins and our faults, it's also a symbol of frailty and mortality. Uh, in many services, at the end of Vanash Wednesday, um, "For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." It's a re- it's a reminder um, that we are not immortal. <laughs> we're not Superman. We're not Superwoman. We're not. We are frail, and we are broken, and we need a Savior. Um, it often is accompanied by what's called a Lenten sacrifice, where there's a giving up of some luxury or pleasure for 40 days. People give up coffee, they give up chocolate, they give up sweets, give up shopping. Um, <clears throat> but it's also a time to add. It's a time to add a spiritual discipline. And so a sense of how are we building and growing. So when I say add a spiritual discipline, it's not the discipline is not the goal. The goal is devotion. To God it's a return to a devotion to God and a return to the Savior who we need and I think of the praying in the in the garden that, that is where Jesus turns um, and on the cross my God why have you forsaken me he's quoting Psalms there that's running through his head and he's turning towards his father uh, so I if you haven't thought through this I would encourage you to think through uh, what does What is Lent going to look like for you? I think that even if it's a simple giving of something up, it teaches something about ourselves that's very powerful. Or um, if you want to uh, think more deeply about your need um, or about your brokenness or whatever, I think that um, deeper thought on that in a practice and shaping these 40 days to uh, direct your attention toward this, towards God and this particular issue is very helpful Uh, so for example um, one of the things that that i'm doing this year is i'm thinking in particular about uh the relationships at home and i think there's two things i mentioned this on on wednesday night but i'll I'll mention them again there's two things happening in the wells home that have made this a difficult year number one is that our kids are getting older and as they get older uh, the parents are releasing control And that's hard because you have so many years where you have all the control. You're 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 thinking about what they eat in the morning, what they eat at night, when they go to bed, who they're hanging out with, Um, and that release of control is difficult. And I think that uh, for me, that's been particularly difficult. And what happens is, you know, as control is, you know, being taken, (laughs) just because they're growing up, I can't, you know, hold that back. you know, there's anxiety, there's fear, I don't know, but I got to dig down and try to figure that out because I've gotten a little bit shorter with my temper, and it affects everyone in the whole house. It um, affects the community, as uh, Graham mentioned. That's I'm glad, glad you mentioned that, Graham, because that comes up in this, uh, this text this morning. Um, it's not just an individual, it's about our community. Um, the other thing, of course, is pandemic, which I have no control over, very little. I can wear a mask and distance and get a vaccine whenever that'll be available for us but there's very little control and so if we're struggling with trying to keep control because that's where our faith is found let's be honest my ability to control my world it's it's not going well with teens (laughs) during pandemic all right so um and yeah, that's funny, but it's, it's been a struggle. Uh, and I've gotten uglier about it. It, it's, it hasn't gone well. And so for the, the Lenten period for me is to turn to God, primarily to turn to God, and to pray and um, think about those things that I can release, that I'm, what I'm going to give up during Lent is more control and trust in God. God's the starting point there. Um, so with that thought in mind, think about, if you haven't already, what these 40 days uh, can look like for you as we enter into this time of Jesus' passion, his suffering, uh, his sacrifice, his own pain, um, and his own turning to God in the midst of that pain. And in the midst of that, um, probably those feelings of abandonment um, that he experiences. Um <clears throat> I want to add another thing that we're going to bring into this series uh, during this time that I haven't heard, um, but I think is there for, this, for what Lent is all about. A period of rebuilding. That as we think about our own brokenness and our own need for God and the faithfulness of God, um, I think we can think of that in terms of rebuilding. The teaching team talked about this series, and um, we were throwing a, bu- a bunch of ideas, and this came up for right after Christmas, and I just felt like, I don't feel like we're rebuilding. I don't feel like the, the nation's rebuilding yet. I'm not ready to rebuild. Um, but my weather app says that we're going to hit 40 four times this week. So uh, spring is on the way. The days will get longer. There is a vaccine. There's um, Things are happening. Um, and so I felt like maybe Lent would be a good time to think about rebuilding. And so what we're going to dive into is the book of Nehemiah, which we'll understand is we'll see soon is, it's not its own book. It actually was uh, one book, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and Nehemiah is, uh, it brings us back to Israel's return from exile. And, uh, I'm gonna, I don't want to give too much because we have an introductory video, um, But it's about rebuilding. And so for me, and I hope that we can communicate this with the text and kind of challenge people to think this way, that perhaps Lent can be seen as a time of rebuilding. And we get a bit of that celebration. Celebration of our brokenness. um, Celebration of the fact that God is not broken. And that in Christ we can be whole again. Um, so rebuilding. So we're gonna we're gonna open up. We're gonna watch a video that will introduce these books to us. Um, we're only dealing with the as, with the Nehemiah portion. Um, we're gonna start with a prayer, and then we're gonna pray together, and then we'll close with music, and uh, and we'll move on to the second Sunday in Lent next week. So let's take a look at that video and get an overview of these books. Um, these videos are so good. Love them. Go ahead and take a look.
1: But but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anti-climax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah, that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon, He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend, he's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes. But it's very strange, because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years, and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back They had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah, that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity. But he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he, too, faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah, said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage, they have to build the city with armed guards to protect them, we keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration of the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and we're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. Mm -hmm. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone, as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved, because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage, he's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I think it's very strange, but we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah.
0: Yeah, so it's a feel-good book. Um, but it reminds me, I mean, what this does is it opens up uh, Jesus, it leads. It points to Jesus, our true temple, the presence of God, God with us. I'm reminded of the scene at the end of Luke, where um, <clears throat> you have these people leaving Jerusalem uh, without any hope, and Jesus is mysteriously with them, walking with them. They don't know that it's him, and um, in the mystery of um, sharing a meal together, uh, they realize that Jesus is with them, he is alive, and they turn around and run back to Jerusalem. And so, um, given even, you know, the endings and the anticlimax, I think it's a great book for Lent, um, because it talks about return, it talks about a return from exile, um, hope, um, but it leaves us hanging for something more, and that is Jesus, okay? In that relationship with Jesus. So, what we're going to do is we are going to pray uh, prayers of uh, repentance uh, during this time, um, confession, but we're going to look very quickly at a prayer. Right at the beginning of the book, um, we have uh, what is a great foundation for prayer, a great foundation for Lent, and some principles uh, that will serve us well uh, during this season. And so we open with Ezra, or I'm sorry, Nehemiah 1, to 1-4. And it says, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah in late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanai, one of my brothers, came to visit me and some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I said this, when when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed for the God of heaven. And then I said, and he goes on into his prayer, which we're going to look at momentarily. Um, But it starts with grief. It starts with that light bulb moment where something's not going well. Um, And this really isn't about the walls. This is about the community and the well-being of the community. Um, community that is not as celebratory as it should be. Something's missing. We saw that in the intro video. And so it begins with this grief. Um, and so as we work through this, we're going to see a lot about Jerusalem. It begins in Persia, ends in Jerusalem. That's very symbolic, coming out of exile and into the heartbeat of Judaism. Um, Jerusalem where the temple is, where the Torah is read, where the celebrations are held. Oftentimes in the Psalms and the prophets, we read about Zion, right? We read about Zion. And Zion becomes this this ideal picture of God's community functioning as it should. Um, we, We have songs like this, okay? So, Sinatra, New York, New York. It's a big celebratory song about New York. Or you can listen to John Mellencamp, just about anything he writes. It's about small town Midwest America, right? Small town. I was born in a small town. And when you listen to that, you can just picture um, uh, the sunset fading on an August night at a baseball game in some small town, the smell of hot dogs and tailgate. I mean, it conjures up an image Um, that we aspire to. Same with the New York. Now, when he sings the song, there's issues with New York (laughs) that don't get addressed. There's still issues. And when we read about these things, um, Zion, in the Psalms and the Prophets in the Old Testament, it's picturing up this ideal picture that we are aspiring to, where this community, and it's very communal, is functioning the way that it should, both with the community within and the community without and the community with God. And everything's right it's the kingdom is is there and so this really isn't about the walls it's about the community functioning and living together and so as we go through lent there is a sense in which i need to figure out what i need to work on but it's also thinking about our community and how it i as an individual work within that community for a community that is healing. We talked a lot about this with the racism class, where uh, we're looking at institutions and political moves that have been made over the years, and part of it is saying, I've been part of this problem. So there's a look at the individual, but it's it's really about the community. And he starts to pray. And there's just some basic things that are so important for us as we think about Lent and think about our walk of faith. He begins with an invocation. He begins and ends with an invocation, but we'll we'll start at the beginning. O oh Lord God of Heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of unfailing love with those who love Him and obey His commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. And he begins with an uh, an invocation where we are drawing on a place of strength. We are looking to what where strength is truly found. And I love this because Lent, it, I don't think it really should start with you know what's going wrong with me, looking at what I need to work on. But it starts with a turning towards God. The Hebrew word for repent means to turn. The idea is that I've been walking one way, but God's over here and I need to turn. That is, that is the beginning spot. Where are we going in terms of the strength we need to work on our faithfulness and our devotion to God? It emphasizes a source of power. It's interesting because he gets a report and the person who comes and gives him the report is, seems to be content with that. Here's what's going wrong. End of story with that guy. But with Nehemiah... He begins by turning towards God. It's not simply good enough to talk about what's going wrong, but let's turn to God for that strength to move through this time of healing and brokenness. And then he turns in the second part of this, the confession. I confess that we have sinned against you, even my own family and I, Have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, and the regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. So he begins with an invocation, he turns to confession. And I love how Nehemiah is included himself in the problem. We have sinned against you. This is not just what they are doing. This is not some problem that they need to work on. We're really good about that in America, pointing out what people need to work on. But he includes himself in his vision for a new community that is whole, that is healing, that is growing, that is devoted to God. He realizes that I am a part of the problem and I am a part of the solution through the power of God and the power of God's spirit. So he confesses their sin. And in the middle, we have, Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, and even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power, and strong hand are your servants. So Nehemiah is looking back to a passage of Scripture that he would have known. Uh, We're looking at a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So this is before Israel enters their land. This is before they're a nation. They're just kind of a group of tribes. It's before they're in uh, what's now known as Israel. They're wandering in the wilderness. And Moses is speaking to his people. God's speaking to Moses. And here's what that passage says. It says, In the future... When you experience all these blessings and cursings, curses I have listed for you, and when you are living among the nations to which your, the Lord your God has exiled you, take to heart all these instructions. If at that time you and your children return to the Lord your God, and if you obey with all your heart, with all your soul, the commands I have given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations. Where he has scattered you. Even though you are banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back again. The Lord your God will return you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will possess that land again. Then he will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. So he's looking back to this promise of restoration. A promise of return from exile. And it can sound like a contract to us. It can kind of sound like if you do this, then this will happen. But at the basis of a covenant is a relationship. And at this point in his prayer, Nehemiah is calling on God to remember the relationship. To remember God's faithfulness. And so often in our New Testaments, when we talk about faith in Jesus, we always talk about faith in Jesus. And among scholars, there's a growing, I think, consensus over a few key passages that we find in Galatians, we find in Romans, we find in Ephesians, I believe. Where there's variant readings of that phrase and what it reads is the faithfulness of Christ. That you are saved by the faith of Christ. We're so used to reading faith in Christ. Here's what I need to do. I just got to have faith. And sometimes during Lent, that's what we're trying to do. I just got to do better. I got to do better. It's not much different than New Year's resolutions, really. I've got to do better. No, that is not what uh, Nehemiah is looking at. He's looking at these passages where God says, God, you said... That you love us. You said that you would be faithful. So we're going to turn to you. And he's boldly calling on God to fulfill his promise to this relationship. Act out of love. Respond out of love. And we see that in the New Testament as well. With the writings of Paul. It's the faithfulness of Jesus that saves us. And as we saw in the intro, these stories end a bit strange. And here is the answer that we're finally waiting for. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is Israel reformed. Jesus is the new humanity. And his faithfulness to God is what makes that salvation possible for us. And at the heart of this, I love how he just invokes God and reminds God of God's own faithfulness. It's bold. And you know, I think at least for myself, if I had that sort of boldness, maybe things <laughs> would look a little different. God, be faithful here. I love that. I love that when you see it in the Psalms, that sort of wake up. God. That's the communication of a relationship. One that we trust. He's calling on God to be faithful. To remember the relationship, not a contract. If it's a contract, we're going to lose out on that every single time. It's a covenant. God promised to step in. So as we talk about our sin, as we think about our sin, as we pray about our sin, and whatever that brokenness is, it's okay to ask God to be faithful to that. I believe God wants to be. I believe God has been. And then he ends with uh, an invocation again and a supplication. O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. I love the progression here. So now he's asking for himself, for power. And the whole thing has been a funnel. With the foundation being God, the source of power and strength, the community. Be faithful to this community, God. This is what your word says. Help me in this. And so like Graham was talking about earlier, this idea of community and individual, I don't think we can separate it, but we do so often in this this country to our detriment. This goes beyond Lent, but I think it does focus on Nehemiah here that his concern and his weeping is over a broken community, a community that's not working. He puts himself in that and puts himself as a part of the problem. But it's about the community working together. So as we go through Lent, and as we pray, part of what I think we need to do is to think about where is the brokenness in the community? How are we broken as a church community? How are we broken as a political community, you know, this country, the global church, churches working together, not just North Harbor, but other churches, our communities, our families, that can we rebuild these and asking God to be faithful in them. So we're going to turn to prayer. We're going to turn to God um, in prayer. And we're going to confess open up. As you feel led, I will read a prayer of confession, and then we'll be silent and you can uh, pray as you feel led, prayers of confession. And when it feels like we have concluded that, I will pray a declaration of forgiveness over us. Let's unite our hearts. God's bow has been hung in the clouds unilateral disarmament in spite of our sin. God remains faithful to the covenant of steadfast love even when we are unfaithful. Without fear then we confess our sins. God, I confess that I have way too often placed my faith in what I'm able to control of my own accord. I confess this. This is my prayer.